Okay, we're in chapter 26, and we're on this chapter dealing with the church. We'll do paragraphs 7 and 8, 7 and 8 this afternoon. But before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll begin our study. Father, we thank you for the time to meet together again this afternoon, and Lord, to be able to open your word and to receive uh, the unfolding of wisdom and understanding that you grant to us, Lord, through your holy word. And so, Father, we pray that we would uh, take heed, Lord, that we would believe uh, and obey what is written in the word of Christ, Lord, that it would be uh, our daily bread, Lord, that it would be our very life to us. Uh, so, Lord, grant to us uh, wisdom and understanding, Lord, that we might know and understand what is the church, Lord, who we are as you have put us together in one body in Christ, Lord, that we might be faithful to Lord, live up to our calling and to discharge our duty one to another. So, Lord, teach us today, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, chapter 26, and we are in paragraph number 7. Number 7. There it says, To every church gathered in this way, conforming to Christ's mind as declared in his word, he has given all power and authority that is in any way necessary to conduct the form of worship and discipline that he has instituted for them to observe. He has also given them commands and rules to use and carry out that power rightly and properly. Here, when they say to every church gathered in this way, they mean gathered in the right way, right? gathered in the biblical way, gathered in a true sense. So we're not talking about false churches, we're talking about true churches. So every true church that is gathered in the proper way under the authority of Christ, right? That's conforming to his mind as declared in his word. So when we're doing that, he has given all power and authority that is necessary to conduct the form of worship and discipline that he has instituted for them to observe. This is similar to what we were talking about this morning. Christ is Lord of the church. He is the head of the church. Yet he exercises his authority in a practical daily manner within the life of the church, right? Not directly in that Christ is presently here with us, right? He's not here visibly, presently, uh, every time that we meet. Christ doesn't walk in the door. He doesn't get up here and open up his own mouth, and we don't hear his very words in the sense of him being here bodily, visibly present among us. But does that mean Christ's power and authority is not here with us? No, we have the authority of Christ. We have the power of Christ. And when we are conducting ourselves according to his word and seeking to uh, order ourselves properly and even execute discipline whenever it is necessary in the life of the church, when we do that, we are representing Christ. We are equipped with his power and his authority when we are doing those things in the right way, as if Christ himself was here doing those things. So it doesn't matter if Christ is here with us visibly, physically, or if he's here invisibly and spiritually, whenever his word is proclaimed and whenever his word is faithfully followed and we're doing what the Bible tells us to do, then we possess the power of Christ. We possess the authority of Christ, even though it may be being used through a human agent or through a human person. 
So this is for our comfort, for our benefit, to know that when we are disciplining, when there's discipline in the church, when we're dealing with matters within the church, that we do have the authority and power of Christ with us, with us through his word, right? Not apart from his word, right? So we're not like the Pope or the Roman Catholics who say that this person has power and authority in and of himself to do whatever he pleases. We don't have that power and authority, but when we do whatever is pleasing to Christ, then we are his representatives. We are his ambassadors. He is speaking and exercising his authority and power over the church through us whenever we're doing it consistent with his word. And he has given the church this authority, this power, so that the church can institute proper worship and proper discipline within the church. And that's why they also say he has given them commands and rules to use and carry out that power rightly and properly. We don't have the authority to carry out the power of Christ contrary to his commands and rules. But when we are carrying it out consistent with his commands and rules, then we are as Christ himself. It is as if Christ is present with us in that Christ is the one exercising the discipline and the authority over the church. He does this through his word, and his word is executed among us through its teaching and then through its application in whatever is necessary. So let's look, Matthew 18, this passage has been a common one that we've consulted throughout these, this chapter because it, it is a place that clearly establishes these things. Matthew chapter 18, we'll pick up in verse 15. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. So here, in dealing with this issue of discipline, right, the the sinning party, the brother has sinned against you. You tell him the fault privately. If he listens, you've won your brother. If not, then you take two or three other witnesses so that it might be confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to the two or three, then you tell it to the church. And then if he refuses to listen to the church, then he's to be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. Right? This is what is happening. But then in verse 18, Jesus gives comfort to his church that whenever they're dealing with these things, right, many times they're going to be accused of being harsh, unloving, ungracious, bitter. These are the types of things that people are going to say. They'll say, we just need to show them the love of Christ. We just need to be gracious to them, right? We don't need to treat them in this harsh and in this difficult way, right? Being as a Gentile or tax collector to you, meaning that they're being excommunicated. They're being expelled out of the church. 
But then Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Right? When you're doing this rightly and biblically, doing it the proper way, then if you are binding someone on earth, what you're doing on earth is a representation of what God has already done in heaven. If the man is an unrepentant sinner and you bind him in sin and you bind him under judgment by expelling him from the church, who's already done that? God has already done it. There's agreement between heaven and earth on these things. And if you loose him on earth, he shall have been loosed in heaven. If he's loosed from his sins through repentance, through the repentance of sin, then you're loosing him, and what is happening on earth is also what has happened in heaven, so that there's agreement between heaven and earth. So when the church is doing this properly, they are doing it under the authority of Christ, and they are doing it consistent with what Christ himself is doing in heaven toward this sinning brother, right? toward the sinning man. And then he gives them the assurance that where the two or three are gathered together, Right, where the, this is the two or three witnesses, where the two or three are in agreement that God is in the midst with them. God is with them. He's present. Christ is present with them. So though he's not here with us visibly and physically, right, we don't see him in that way, Christ is always present spiritually and invisibly with his church. And whenever we are doing what's biblical and right, he is with us, he is present, he is in the midst of us, and it is as if Christ himself is here doing those things. He is here with us through his holy word. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Right, and what we just read about them being as a tax collector and a Gentile, isn't it true on the day of judgment that false believers, those who claim to be Christians but are not true Christians, that Jesus will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Well, when the church is expelling one of the so-called brothers, what are they doing? Are they not saying, depart from us? Depart from us, you worker of iniquity, we don't know you, right? You're not one of us. So what is happening there in that moment in the church is what's going to happen on the day of judgment if that person does not repent. So there is that agreement with Christ. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I was present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus... I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, 
nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I do not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So there, the apostle, notice he says in verse 3, he himself is not present with them, right? He's absent in body, but how is he present with them? In spirit, in his spirit. He's there, and he's already judged the man. So he wants them to treat the man as if he was present. Do to him what I would do to him if I were present among you. And when he's saying that, this is the same that Jesus would do if he was present among us. Would Jesus suffer for an immoral man who has his father's wife and is committing immorality with him? If Jesus was present in that situation and was the pastor of that church, would Jesus tolerate a man like that in the assembly? Absolutely not. Would the Apostle Paul tolerate a man like that in the assembly? Absolutely not. So should we tolerate someone in the assembly who's doing those things? No. And when we remove the man, as he expects them to do, then they are being consistent with the apostle and with the Lord Jesus as well. But they are doing those things. So that's the expectation. They have the power and the authority from Christ to expel this wicked man and to remove him from their presence. And notice there, he says that he's already judged him. The apostle says, I've already judged him. And what does he expect them to do? To judge him as well. To judge him and expose his sin and to cast him out. Now people will say, well, only God can judge me. Right, that's what people believe, that only God can judge me. God is the only judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. Well, yes, ultimately, in the ultimate sense, on the day of judgment, only Christ can judge us, but he expects us to judge with righteous judgment. Not judging outside of him, outside of his authority, outside of his wisdom, but judging in a consistent way with his wisdom and his righteousness. And we are to do that in this life whenever duty calls. And in this case, when there's someone committing this kind of immorality, then the church is expected to judge the man, to say, this is evil, this is sin, and those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot live in this unrepentant sin and call yourself a brother. And if you will not repent of this sin, then you have to be expelled and you have to be removed from among us. And that way they're not judging in an evil way, they're judging in a righteous way because that's what Christ is going to do on the day of judgment. He's going to remove that man and that man, if he will not repent, will have no share in the kingdom of God. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This not only applies to discipline, to punishment, to judgment, right, to removal and expulsion, 
but also the power and authority to pronounce the forgiveness of sins and to restore a brother. We have the power and authority to do that as well. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6 says, Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that, on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Here, the apostle is telling the church that what they had done previously, now whether this is referring to the incident from 1 Corinthians 5 or whether this is a different incident, it doesn't say. But in whatever regard, whether it's the man from 1 Corinthians 5 or whether it was another issue that arose that required discipline, in this case, whoever it was, was repentant, right? The punishment that was inflicted by the majority produced in this person true repentance, true sorrow over sin. He was truly sorrowful. So now, what does the apostle want the church to do? Forgive him. Forgive him, comfort him, so that he's not overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You did expel him. You did punish him. You did treat him in this harsh way. But now he's repentant. Now he's been broken over his sin. Now he's been humbled over his sin. So you need to bring him back in. You need to comfort him. right? You need to speak words of compassion to him and reaffirm your love for him by forgiveness and restoration. Restoring him to his place within the body of Christ. So it works both ways. Both judgment and expulsion and forgiveness and reaffirming, reaffirming and restoration within the body of Christ. And he expects the church to do these things under the authority of Christ, not outside, but under his authority by using his word. He expects the church to do these things because he has equipped the church with the power and the authority to do these types of things. Okay, so that's what they mean by paragraph seven. Okay, number eight, chapter 26 Paragraph 8. Okay, a local church, gathered and fully organized according to the mind of Christ, consists of officers and members. The officers appointed by Christ are overseers or elders and deacons. They are to be chosen and set apart by the church, uh, called and gathered in this way, for the distinct purpose of administering ordinances and for carrying out any other power or duty Christ entrusts them with or calls them to. This pattern is to be continued to the end of the age. So here, the officers of the church, or they divide the church up into two groups that consist of officers and members, right? Officers are those who are appointed to the position of either overseer, or elder, or pastor, however, these are all interchangeable words. So there is the office of elder, or overseer, or pastor, and then the other office is the office of deacon, or the office of the servant, right? These two offices, and then the rest are members, the rest of the body of Christ. So within the body of Christ, there will be those that are called either to the position of elder or to the position of deacon, And these two positions are necessary so that the church is ordered properly 
and that it carries out its authority in the right way, under the authority of Christ. So they are to lead in the church in order to bring these things about. And this is to be continued to the end of the age. As long as the church is here in this present life, then it is necessary for there to be the office of elders and the office of deacons in the church so that the church functions properly and is equipped for the things that it needs in order to do the will of God. And we'll talk more about that uh, next week as well because you might say, well, we only have one elder and we don't have any deacons, which is true. And why is that the case? Well, one, it's something that we hope to rectify in the near future, but also in the situation in which we find ourselves, it takes time. It's not something that can be done hastily. It's not something that you meet someone and a month after you met them, you elevate them to the position of elder or you elevate them to the position of deacon within the church. <clears throat> because once they're there, they're there, right? It's kind of like when you get married, you know? Once you get her, you've got her for the rest of your life. So you want to make sure that it's a good one, okay? Well, that's the same way in the church as well. Whenever there are elders that are elevated to that position or whenever there is someone elevated to the position of deacon, they are entering into this office. And so there needs to be testing, there needs to be proving to make sure that the person is qualified to fulfill these duties and to fulfill these roles. And in the case of many of us, the experience we had in the churches that we grew up in, uh, the office of elder wasn't being performed rightly, nor was the office of deacon, that they were being done in an unbiblical way. So it also takes time to unravel that and to come to the right conclusion. But I will say to you that our goal long-term as a church, just as it is in many other things, is to be biblical. To be biblical, and that means a plurality of elders and also a plurality of deacons, both the office of elder and the office of deacon. And in due time, the Lord will provide, and we're watching, right? We're watching. So, uh, so as God provides, then those things can be established. Okay, but that's what they're talking about here. The church needs leadership, right? The church needs, just as in the home, there has to be proper authority so also in the church. And the proper authority in the church is the body of elders, the body of elders, and then those who are to serve in the church to meet the various needs that need to be dealt with so that the elders can give themselves to prayer and to the preaching of the word. This is what the office of the deacon is for, is to assist in these things. And they are there for the purpose of helping the church carry out what it is called to do. And this is necessary in this life. In this life, because Christ is in heaven. He's at the right hand of God the Father. He is the shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He appoints under shepherds who stand in his place in the local church and who are to shepherd the flock under the authority of Christ, as if Christ himself was here. And what would Christ do if he was here with us? He would be teaching the Bible. That's what he did when his ministry, he taught the word of God. That's what we should be doing as well. That's what the duty of the shepherd is to do. And then the deacon to serve in the church and to meet the various needs uh, that are there. Okay, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And we'll pick up in verse 17. 
Acts 20, verse 17. It says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God, into the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they were accompanying him to the ship. So here, when he is sailing near Ephesus, uh, he sent to the elders of the Ephesian church. This was a church that was very dear to him, that he had spent much time there, And when he's in close proximity, he sends for the elders to come and meet him at Miletus so that he can give them final instructions of what it is that they are supposed to do. And that is in verse 28. He says, Be on guard for yourself and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So there, they are... They are a part of the flock, right? So they are a part of the flock, but not everyone in the flock is an overseer. Only some of them are overseers, and the task that they have at hand is to guard the flock, right? To watch out for them, to guard them from false teachers who want to come in and ravage them, and to shepherd the flock of God by feeding them, providing for them, caring for them. And how do they do that? Through the word of Christ, by teaching them the word of God. That's what he expects them to do. Okay, Philippians. And then Philippians chapter 1. 
and verse 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. So there we have this distinction being made. Being made. One, it's obvious he's writing the letter to all the saints, but then he also includes or he singles out the overseers and the deacons. That, that yes, it's to all the church, all the saints there, but he singles out the elders or the overseers and the deacons because they are the ones who have a greater responsibility to make sure that what the letter says is being practiced and believed within the church. And that it is their duty to take these things very seriously so that they can then teach others and disseminate this knowledge and understanding throughout the rest of the church. Okay, another couple of passages which were not listed here. 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. These are the qualifications for both elders and deacons. 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 16. It says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. So for a man to desire to be an overseer, not because he wants position, not because he wants fame and fortune. Those who are doing it for that, they need to stay far away. But if he desires it because he cares for the flock, he's concerned with the glory of God, he loves the word of God, he's been equipped and given the ability to teach, and he desires to teach the word of God for the good and benefit of the people and for the glory of God, then that's a good thing, right? It is a noble task. It is a good work that he desires to do. So though there are many who enter into it for the wrong reasons, those that enter into it for the right reasons, they are desiring a good thing, a good thing. So that's a positive. Then he gives the qualifications. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must also be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So here, much of what he's dealing with has to do with his character. His character, his virtue, the manner of life that he lives. So most of these have to do with character, his virtue, his righteousness, his godliness, the way that he lives and the way that he conducts himself. In his own life, he is a righteous man, a godly man. Also in his home, he manages his household well. Right? If he can't manage his home, then how is he going to manage the church? If he doesn't have control over his wife and children, how is he going to have control over the church? Right? He's not going to be able to do so. Right? So he needs to have a properly run and ordered home. Also, not a new convert. He should not be a new convert 
or a young Christian, a young believer. Because then there's the temptation toward conceit, toward being conceited, and then he's going to fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Because wasn't the devil conceited? Wasn't he filled with pride and that led to his downfall and demise? Well, if he's young, then he's going to get a big head. He's going to get puffed up. Now, this is one of the big problems that's taking place in the churches today. Because when are the young men called into ministry? 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. And then they send them off to Bible college, which fills them with all sorts of nonsense. Then they send them off to the seminary and they get a master's degree or a doctorate. And then they think they know everything in the world and that they are uh, God's gift to mankind. Right? I know this because I was one of them. Right? I went through this whole process. I didn't go to Bible college. I went to the University of Oklahoma. But then I did go to seminary and got the master's degree. And you come in thinking that you're, you know everything. Right? I am the expert. Right? I am the professional. I've been to the seminary. This is not the way it should be done, right? It, this does not tend toward righteousness, and it does not tend toward the good of the church. The way the ministers should be trained is within the church, not through institutions. Show me one place in the Bible where they sent off the young men to the institution to be trained to be pastors. That's not the way it happened. How did the Apostle Paul do it? He took them with him. Right? He took them with him, he took them under his wings, and he trained them within the confines of ministry and the local church. Without promises of big salaries, without promises of all the fame and fortune that they receive in conferring degrees and honors and all this stuff upon them. All of that is worthless, and it's no good, and it's led to the miser misery that is in the church today. Because they go to the seminary, they get corrupted, and then they go out and become pastors in these churches, and then what do they do? Well, the disciples are not above his teacher. They become like their teachers, which are the liberal professors at the seminary. Then they go to the churches, and then they disseminate this garbage to everyone else. Right? It's been puked up on them, and then they go and puke it up in the churches. And, and then it leads to misery for everyone. It's not good for anyone. So the proper way it should be done is if there are young men who are zealous for the Lord, then let them get married, let them get a job, let them work, raise their family, serve in the church, prove their godliness, prove their righteousness, teach them the word of God, and if over time they prove themselves to be worthy, to be godly, to have the ability to teach, you give them more and more responsibility, and then over time then you elevate them to that level. That's the way it should be done within the church, right? Within the church. Or then if there's another church over there in the neighboring town or wherever, and they need a pastor, then you could recommend that person to go there. It should be done in this way, not in the way it's being done today, right? Not, not that. That's part of the problem with the churches today. This is why everything is so horrible. Okay, also, he says, good reputation with those outside the church. Good reputation. Now, he doesn't mean that every single person outside the church is going to think wonderful things about this person. Did the Apostle Paul have a good reputation with everyone outside the church? No, he did not have a good reputation with everyone. The unbelieving Jews hated him, right? They hated him. They said horrible things about him. But he did have a good reputation among some, right? he actually had a better reputation amongst the pagan Romans than he did amongst the unbelieving Jews. And many of the Romans, though pagans and unbelievers, 
At least they saw and recognized that this man has done nothing worthy of what they're doing to him. They saw that he was a godly man, a serious man, that he wasn't a troublemaker. He wasn't a nuisance to society. And this is how it will be. It should be as well. Again, there will be the riffraff, the rabble. There's going to be the naysayers and the ones who are going to smear us and persecute us. But we should live in such a way that our neighbors, people in the community, who, people we work with, where they know and they say, we know that he's a godly man. He's serious. He's not taking advantage of people. He's not out pillaging and murdering and killing cats or doing any of those kinds of things, okay? So that's what they mean when it says good reputation with those outside the church. Then verse 8, deacons. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So here with the deacons, essentially it's the same qualifications except for the one. What's the difference between the elder and the deacon? In terms of character, identical. They both need to be godly men, but the difference is the elder is able to teach. He, is, he has that responsibility, that gift from God to be able to teach. And not everyone is able to teach, only those that have been given it by God. But if a man is godly and he's not able to teach, well, then he's qualified to serve as a deacon, a deacon in the church. And this is a good thing, right? He, it says so at the end. Those who serve well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing, a high standing within the church, in a high standing before God, and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Great confidence in their faith, in their salvation, right, in all of these things. Also, when it says women, I don't think it's saying women deacons, as some people take it, but the wives of deacons. The wives of the deacon and the wife of the elder, they should be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. The wife of the elder or the deacon needs to behave in a certain way as well, right? And there are some who are disqualified, who the male may be qualified, but are disqualified because of the wife, because of the wife. Okay, one last passage, Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. It says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So here the apostle left Titus, one of his companions, in Crete, this uh, area of Crete, with the task of appointing elders over the churches 
as directed by the apostle. So that's his duty, is to appoint the elders under the authority of the apostle, under the authority of Christ, and he's to do this in all the cities. Wherever there are Christians, wherever there are churches, they need elders, and it's Titus's job. Notice this, which we'll deal with this next, next time as well. He doesn't tell the church, you just select your own elders. But who appoints them? In this case, the Apostle Paul, through Titus, appointed the elders. And then once the elders are established, then in successive generations, it will be the body of elders who appoints more elders. More elders, because they're the leaders. They're the ones who have been given that authority in the church. Okay? Now he's going to describe the qualifications. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So here, just a couple of things to point out. Notice again, the emphasis here is on the elder's character, his virtue, his life, his godliness, the way that he lives, right? That's what he's really focusing on, that he needs to be this kind of a man, above reproach, husband of one wife. Also, he says here, having children who believe. Now, I take that phrase to be similar to what he said in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He needs to manage his household well. He needs to manage his household well. And if he's managing his household well and teaching the Bible in his own home, then likely what's going to be true of his children? That they're going to be believers. Now, I don't think he means that the elder's children, every single child, must be a believer. And if one child, say he has 10 children nine are believers and one is an unbeliever, that now he's disqualified because he has one out of ten who is an unbeliever. But I don't think that's what he's saying here. Otherwise, it would exclude many people in the Bible who are prophets, who were righteous men, they would all be excluded from serving as pastors in a church. How could someone be a prophet but not be qualified to be a pastor? So who are examples in the Bible of people who were prophets, who were righteous men, godly men, but who would be, if, if indeed every single child must be a believer, who are examples of those who would be disqualified from serving as a pastor if every child must be a believer? Well, first, Adam. Adam would be disqualified because Cain was obviously an unbeliever, and he murdered his brother Abel. Noah would be disqualified because Noah had Ham, and Ham was obviously an unbeliever. What about Abraham? Abraham would be disqualified because Abraham had Ishmael, and Ishmael, we know, was an unbeliever. Isaac would be disqualified because Isaac had Esau, and Esau was clearly an unbeliever. Jacob, now later in his life he would be qualified, but not till he was in his 80s or 90s because well, we know he didn't get married until his 60s, and then he didn't have his children, and then at least during the time when Joseph was 17 and his brother sold him into slavery, most of the brothers were unbelievers at that time. 
Now, I take it that later on, after they come to Egypt, they are believers at that time. But Jacob is a very old man at that time. So he would have been disqualified all of that time until all of them came, became believers. What about Aaron? Aaron had two sons that were killed before the Lord, Nadab and Abihu. And Aaron was the high priest. The, the high priest, right, which is in the Old Testament equivalent to being a pastor, right, to being a pastor. He even at a very high rank in that regard. Samuel, the prophet Samuel, he had two sons that were both described as worthless men. He had two sons that were unbelievers. David had multiple sons who were unbelievers. Solomon had a son who was an unbeliever, at least with Rehoboam, right? We know that he was a wicked man and was not a believer, and we could go on and list more as well. So I don't think it literally means that every single child of the elder has to be a believer, and if not, then he is unqualified because that would exclude all of these men. Right? If that was the case, if it meant literally every single child must be a true Christian, then anyone who had any child who was an unbeliever would be disqualified. Also, it would exclude anyone with young children. Because if their children are young, how do you know they're believers? Well, if they're infants, they're not believers. So you'd have to at least wait until they grew up and could be tested and proven that they were true believers. So at what point would anyone be qualified who had young children? And then what if someone's not married and has no children? If literally it means that he must have children who are believers. Well, if he's not married or he has no children, then he doesn't have children who are believers. So that would exclude Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul as well, neither of whom were married and neither who had children. So when he says his children are believers. What I take it that he means is similar to 1 Timothy chapter 3. He manages his household well. And if he manages his household well, then likely many of his children will be believers. Though ultimately, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. But even if a child is an unbeliever, even if he has a mixture, some believers, some unbelievers, are we able to tell whether or not he's managed his house well? Can we tell that if this child is an unbeliever, it's not because of the neglect of his father, but it is in spite of the way that his parents raised him, the way his father raised him? So I think that's the best way to interpret and to take, and to take that clause, that phrase, that his children are believers, meaning he manages his household well with the result that likely many of them will be believers, maybe all of them, that's what I want, Lord willing, for my own household, that all of my children would be believers. But ultimately, it depends on God. And all we can do in terms of responsibility, in terms of, of what is our expectation, we can just do what God tells us to do. Raise them the way that you're supposed to raise them. Teach them the word of God at home. Manage your household well. Discipline your children in the proper way. But ultimately, each child, it depends on the will of God. It depends on the will of God, and it's outside of the control of the parents and of the father. Okay, so that's what I take in, in that regard, having children who believe. Then also, uh, notice there in verse 9, it says, Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So there, 
is the qualification, the, there is the responsibility. The responsibility of the elder or the overseer is to hold to the faithful word, meaning the word of Christ, and then exhort in sound doctrine. That's the positive element. He is to teach and exhort in sound doctrine so that the church knows what the Bible teaches on this topic and this topic and this topic and this topic, all the various topics, all the doctrines that the Bible addresses, they know what to believe because he's exhorting them in sound doctrine and then also refute those who contradict it. This is the, it's not negative in a bad sense, it's the negative side or the uh, censoring side of the pastoral ministry. When someone spews out something contrary to the word of Christ, what does the pastor have to do? He has to refute them, refute them. If they do it publicly, how does he have to refute them? He has to refute them publicly and say, no, this is not right. This is not what the Bible teaches and expose that. So he has to do both. The ministry includes both. Now, I say that because many people today, they'll just say, we just need to be positive. Don't focus on the negative. We should just talk about what we believe and not talk about what other people believe and all those things. Well, if if you're reading it, if you're listening to it, if you're being exposed to it, then we have to talk about it. And aren't we being exposed constantly to many voices, many ideas, many philosophies that are contrary to the word of Christ? So what do we have to do? You cannot be a faithful pastor and just be positive. Right? These people are derelicts, right? They are not doing their responsibility. We have to do both. We have to teach this is what the Bible says, and then this philosophy, this theology, this idea that's out there, this is contrary to what the Bible teaches because of this and this and this, and explain those things. And that's not because we're pugnacious, as it says, not because we like to quarrel and fight, but we have to do this as a part of the responsibility of what it means to be an elder and what it means to refute those who contradict the word of God. So that is a part of the ministry. So this is the way then the church functions with the power and authority of Christ exercised typically within the body through the leadership of the elders and the leadership of the deacons uh, within the church and then everything working together so that the body is equipped and whole and complete to do the will of God. And that's what we should long for and we should pray for our church, that God would see fit to raise up in our midst men who are qualified to serve as elders, men who are qualified to serve as deacons, and that he would continue to raise them up because one of these days all of us are going to be dead, right? And Lord willing, Christ Reformed Church will still be here, and we're going to need a new generation of elders and deacons. Well, where are they going to come from? They're not from Mars. They're not going to fall out of the sky. They're going to have to come from from among us, right? We're gonna, we have to raise them up, and that's all of our responsibility to do so and to raise up a new generation of those who fear the Lord, and then as God calls and equips to identify those who can serve as elders and deacons within the body of Christ. Okay, let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have, um, Lord, you are the one who has created the church, you are the Lord of the church. You are the one who has purchased us, Lord, by your blood. We belong to you. Lord, we are your flock. We are the sheep of your pasture. And Lord, we thank you that 
in this life, you have, Lord, organized us in such a way that everything that we need so that we can attain to maturity in Christ, Lord, to completion in terms of the body of Christ, Lord, you have given us. So, Lord, we thank you for that, and we pray, Lord, that you would be with our church, Lord, that you would help us to fulfill our calling, Lord, to fulfill our ministry, Lord, that we would be an encouragement to one another, Lord, as we meet together and as we strive to enter into the kingdom of God, Lord, that we might be encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Lord, we thank you that you have given to your church both elders and deacons, and Lord, we pray that in due time, Lord, you would raise up from among us, Lord, more men who could serve in both of these capacities. Lord, that you would raise up uh, those who fear you, Lord, those who are godly. And Lord, that you would do so, Lord, not just for our immediate benefit, but also, Lord, for the long-term benefit of this church. Lord, as we get many years down the road, and Lord, as we all begin to uh, perish and fade away, Lord, we desire that our children and our grandchildren and even our great-grandchildren, Lord, would still be congregating here together at Christ Reformed Church. Lord, under this banner, Lord, we desire that they would continue to hold fast to the doctrines, Lord, that we believe and that we teach. Lord, that they would desire to live a godly life and to do those things that are pleasing to you. So, Lord, we know that we will need uh, those raised up in the future, Lord, who might serve in this way. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that among us and that, Lord, we would be faithful, uh, Lord, to train and to uh, take those things that you have taught us and, Lord, to entrust them to faithful men who will later be able to teach them as well. So, Lord, be with us and we pray that you would equip us for every good thing. Lord, give us safety as we travel home today. Lord, we pray that you continue to bless the remainder of our Lord's Day. And Lord, that you bring us back together again on Wednesday. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.